when I qualified as a doctor in 1980, nobody really knew anything about the extraordinary physiology and anatomy That's true. Yeah. of, of yeah. sports mm. people. Mm. And in fact, they started the first sports medicine course mm -hmm. in London in the early 1980s. Yep. And when they tried to write the curriculum, they didn't know where to start because nobody knew what sports medicine and sports surgery was. Mm -hmm. And that was less than 40 years ago. When Liverpool won their European Cups in the 1970s, mm -hmm. yeah. they didn't even have a qualified physiotherapist. Really? Yeah. It was all ex-players mm -hmm. who'd done weekend courses mm -hmm. wow. and learned how to rub mm -hmm. a bit of liniment on thighs. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to Surgical Goals, the podcast that brings you a unique insight into the world of sport and shines a light on many of the injuries picked up along the way from some of the best sports stars and medical minds throughout their careers and of course the recoveries. My name is Jennifer Rioch and with the help of orthopaedic surgeon Professor Gordon Mackay, we're going to delve into that fascinating side of the sporting world. This week we are delighted to be joined by consultant orthopaedic surgeon, Professor of Sports Medicine at the University of Northampton. And now author as well, Professor Bill Ribbons. Bill, thank you so much for chatting to us. Welcome, Bill. Thank you very much for inviting me. <laughs> so you've obviously had uh, an incredible career dealing with a lot of injuries along the way. Quite a big question to start with, but has there been a, a big change in how sports injuries are dealt with now compared to the start of your career? There's been an, an enormous change. When I qualified as a doctor in 1980, nobody really knew anything about the extraordinary physiology and anatomy That's true. Yeah. of, of yeah. sports mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they started the first sports medicine course, as Gordon remembers, mm -hmm. in London in the early 1980s. Yep. And when they tried to write the curriculum, they didn't know where to start because nobody knew what sports medicine and sports surgery was. Mm -hmm. And that was less than 40 years ago. So if, if you look back, I mean... When Liverpool won their European Cups in the 1970s, mm -hmm. yeah. they didn't even have a qualified physiotherapist. Really? Yeah. It was all ex-players mm -hmm. who'd done weekend courses mm -hmm. wow. and learned how to rub mm. a bit of liniment on thighs. <laughs> yeah. and, and that was the extent. Yeah. Uh, That's it's funny when you say that, Bill, because I remember back as, as a young player and uh, the favourite quote always from the physiotherapist was, they would assess you and they'd look very seriously at you and it was like, mm, you could think they, they really have got a handle on this. And then they would look up and they'd say, yeah, run it off, son. Run it off. <laughs> if in doubt, run it yeah. off. And, and I was thinking, well, that was a detailed analysis, you know. <laughs> I feel that it's evolved dramatically then. Yeah. I mean, the change well, now is incredible. The it, knowledge now. It, well, it, it's totally changed. Brian Clough, that famous manager, his first mm -hmm. ever job in football was, was manager of Hartlepool United in the North East. Mm -hmm. And he wanted his sidekick, Peter Taylor, who he worked with most of his mm -hmm. managerial career to be with him. And Hartlepool United, as they are now, were not awash with money. And they said, well, we can't, you can't have an assistant manager. Mm -hmm. So he said, they said, but the physiotherapist has just left. Do you think Peter <laughs> could be the physiotherapist? So Peter Taylor had no background in physiotherapy. That's yeah. crazy. And yeah. so he was assistant manager. And, and sometimes and, a physio. <laughs> and ran on with the magic sponge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It is, it is crazy, isn't it, how that's evolved and how casual it was before. I mean, I think the tradition was really a personal trainer would become the rub man and physiotherapist. Yeah. That was the sort of normal progression, maybe in the 20s and 30s. Yeah. 
So medical training wasn't required, really. What was it, do you think, that changed attitude? Was it just a gradual, like, more knowledge of the fact that sports people, I suppose their bodies are working at a different pace to kind of everyone else? Or Well, I think inevitably it was increased media interest and it was money. Finance, mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Back in the early 1960s, footballers' maximum wage, and then they introduced a £100 a week footballer. And then through the 60s and 70s and 80s, they became wealthier. And of course, for the individual clubs, the worth of that player was greater. So when they started to catch up with the racehorses in terms of value, they get the same level of uh, care that the vets have been providing for for, for years. My dear friend, Professor of Veterinary Medicine at the the Royal Veterinary College, says we will never be worth as much as a thoroughbred racehorse. That's probably true. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Comparisons in there directly. You're not quite making a thoroughbred racehorse. But but Bill, you're, you're obviously a leading light and we'll come on to the details of your involvement in sports medicine, but I was always intrigued by your initial interest in sport. You were really, from a very early age, introduced to sport with your father, is that right? Yes, um, my father was a sports journalist. And so from the age of three, I used to be taken to the rugby, the football, the cricket. Fantastic. And sit in the press box. And <laughs> Every uh, young boy's dream, really. Yeah, it, no, it's it, cool. it was. And although my hometown, Northampton's a small town, it's one of only six places, towns or cities in England that has got first-class cricket, football in, in the one of the top four divisions. And, of course, they did play in the mm-hmm. to the Premier League one season and top-class rugby union. So it's a sports-mad little town. Yeah. And you've been the team doctor for all the above. <laughs> I was going to ask, did yeah. you have a choice of sport? What did you yeah. prefer? Or well, was it kind you, of a bit of everything? Well, you were elite sports, sorry. We were not really doing this in sequence, but you were quite an elite sportsman yourself in your younger days. Played for your county for rugby, is that correct? Despite your size? Yes. No, uh, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> you can tell you guys know each other when you go in with that so, dick. So, 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 so I was five foot eight and less than 10 stone. Uh-huh. And, so quick. Good and, quick, quick and brave. Yeah. Quick and brave. I was an athlete, a hurdler principally, which was not the greatest event to choose if you're only five foot eight, and played rugby. I mean, I played rugby since I was 43, but because, because in those days, in the 1970s, you could play. I mean, I played for Northampton rugby second team in the backs. I mean, as I say now, at that size, they wouldn't let me on with the half-time oranges. <laughs> That's mad. Um, uh, the physicality's evolved a lot uh, over the years. It has, yeah. And that's why we've had to increase our skill levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I think that's the thing. You have seen players just get bigger and bigger and stronger. So the impact on their bodies, especially in something like rugby, must be huge. It's like that for the players at the elite level now, it is like being hit by a truck many times mm. every game. And That's intense. I mean, how does your body cope with that? It takes them a long time yeah. to recover. You, you've partly on the back of your book, which was fantastic, in Knife in the Fast Lane, you are now the go-to resource. So you've actually been involved in a lot of recent controversies about that, Bill, in terms of concussion and the, the consequence of repetitive impact. Yes, When I wrote the book, I've covered all the different sports that I've been involved in. But I did want to write a chapter on head injuries in sports Mm -hmm. and concussion. It's something I feel very strongly about. And the publication of the book coincided just a month before with the mass legal action that is being brought by a number of ex-rugby players who in their 40s are now being diagnosed with 
presenile dementia. Yeah, tragic, it's just isn't so it? young. Tragic. It, it is. And so I was contacted and asked people having read uh, the chapter if I would become involved. And so there was a group called Progressive Rugby has been mm. formed. And we're a, an eclectic group of doctors, orthopedic surgeons, neurosurgeons, GPs, ex-international players, male and female, mm. uh, referees, administrators, head teachers, P staff. Mm -hmm. It's a big group of people. Yeah, but it's attracted a lot of criticism and people think that we want to actually stop rugby. But we're actually all complete rugby nuts. Yeah, you're yeah, all you enthusiasts, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, we're yeah. lovely. And we want to protect it going uh -huh. forward yep. so that it survives yeah. another century. Mm -hmm. Which means protecting the athletes that are playing it, doesn't yeah. it? it? It does, because as you say, the, the size and shape of these people have just changed beyond all recognition. The game is much faster. The ball is in play a lot more. Yeah. And therefore the number of tackles and physical involvement is much greater than it was before the game went professional in 95, 96. So it, it is a new sport and no longer is it the proud boast. It didn't matter what your size yeah. or shape was. There was always a position for you on the rugby pitch. Yeah, well, it used to be very inclusive, didn't it? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, when you saw the mercurial Welsh wingers like Gerald Davis and people like that, you know, quite tiny people. Mm. Yeah. And you just wonder now whether they would ever get a yeah. look in. I mean, we even spoke to Chris Patterson we did, as yeah. well. And he, again, is not your typical six foot ten. No, no. He, he's, he's actually probably a bit more lean, a bit small. Yeah. But he's yeah. not a small guy, really. But he's one of the smaller people on that field or was when he was playing. And again, that's probably evolved since he was on the pitch. Yeah. And even then they mentioned the, the reason Chris managed to survive in that company was power to weight. So power. He seemed to yeah, be so the strongest, power. actually, effectively in the whole squad. So he needed to be able to compensate for, for any deficiency in terms of bulk. But, you know, it is fascinating the way the game's changing. And, and it's a shame if you're being challenged when you've actually got the best interests of the sport at heart. Because to ignore these problems just results in a complete disaster in the future for everybody, doesn't it? Well, what's sad, what saddens me is, is that America has gone through this. Yeah. Starting with Benito Malu, who first opened the can of worms on... Yeah, on, on then, head injuries in America. So just for folk listening to be clear, so it's not just the like head injuries that necessarily knock you unconscious. This is repetitive impact, high energy impacts, resulting in sequential brain injury as well as serious concussive episodes. There are obviously the top end, the serious concussive episodes. Yeah. But what we don't know is all the sub concussive yeah. episodes, which are nowhere near the impact that mm. makes the headlines. Mm. But the repetitive uh, scrummaging balls yeah. that take place in training as well as playing. Yeah. And World Rugby, to their credit, have actually, within the last year, tried to set down guidelines yep. on uh, restricting the amount of contact during the week. Yeah. And hopefully that's... That will have an impact. Through. And of course, the, the other thing we don't know is, is protecting the teenager. Yeah. Because I have a feeling that if you can get your teenagers through to senior rugby without having concussive episodes, they may be less susceptible. Mm -hmm. And so does it start mm -hmm. with that as a teenager? We know there's been some good early work coming out from my university as well as others, um, that some people are more susceptible than others. There's a mm -hmm. genetic component to this as well. And that's going to be a challenging thing because if you got to the point where you took your academy rugby players at 17, 18, 
and you genetically tested them and said, actually, you're it's a bit more a susceptible idea. than others. Yeah. Is that restraint of trade? Yeah. Is that These are all interesting questions that elite sport is going to have to grapple with. Mm. So it's yeah. a real challenge to work that out. You've obviously had an incredible varied mm. career, though, and at Knife in the Fast Lane, mm-hmm. I enjoy that title very much. It works so well. <laughs> but what else? You've covered obviously concussion in there. Is it a, a wide variety of stuff that you've worked on in your career? What What does the book actually entail? Well, I suppose it, it's semi-autobiographical mm-hmm. and it's semi-commentary. Okay. Yeah. So it goes through ballet, mm-hmm. which I, rega- I regard. Billy, uh, you've, you, you've been involved in more sports than any other yeah. Start, sports doc I know, I, actually. I started in boxing. Yep which now I have a different <laughs> view on boxing than I did in 1981. Okay. So I go through chapters on rugby union, cricket, football, so boxing, athletics, Formula One. Wow. Because you did look after Michael Schumacher, not in his tragic accident, but during his professional career, you had, had to deal with the media and the dramas involved with Schumacher's care. That, that was in 1999 when he drove into the wall at oh, Silverstone, God. broke wow. his leg. Yeah. Wow. Uh, it's, yeah. it's an incredible variety. I, I presume <laughs> is it talking about the most common injuries in each of those sports? Is it well, generally discussing it, your experience with them? It, it, it goes into some of the controversies. I deal with the psychology of the changing room, which I find fascinating. Okay. And different sports, how cricket changing room is different to a rugby changing room or a football changing room. I deal with the modern manager particularly in football. Okay. This is great because nobody really talks about that from the yeah, sports it's a really perspective. Because all of the pressures I go, you know, Jose Mourinho during his time at Chelsea sacked three doctors. Yeah. Wow. Which yeah. is an interesting thing. I mean, we, we know about Eva Canero, who was the, the final one, but he actually got through two other doctors before that. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but just for folk listening, traditionally a team doctor was almost like a member of the board, wasn't he? He was a respected member of the club. And it was unheard of to think that the manager would come in and behave that way towards the professional that's attached to the club. But that's not unusual now, is it? You know, no, it's, it's, it's not. And, and I question what the position of the manager is. Yeah. Because yeah. the manager is in charge of performance Absolutely. of the athletes. As we know, the tenure of a manager. 18 in, months, in perhaps. Club is about at 18, its best. It's about 18 months. Yeah. And yet a manager can come in and just sack the physiotherapists, the doctors. Um, increasingly, as you know, mm-hmm. a manager comes in, particularly at the top end, and just wants to parachute in their entire team. So it's not only the coaches, the goalkeeping coach. <laughs> yeah. They want their own doctors flying in from Italy, yeah, Spain. Yeah. They want their own physiotherapists. And when they go, the manager goes, the whole echelon disappears as well. And then they bring somebody else in. Uh-huh. So there's no continuity of care. Yeah, I, I write about that. I write about confidentiality, which I feel very strongly about. I mean, I have written about certain people, but in the book, everybody I wrote about, I sent them or gave to them the piece I'd written and said, am Are I, you okay am I allowed to, yeah. to do that? Mm-hmm. Because that's difficult. I did a, a chapter on the legal side of it, which I don't think... And it's uh, more and more complex, isn't people, it? People, yeah, people, people, people challenged understand that. how much Gordon and I have to pay yeah. every year to be insured to look after these people and for most doctors their top limit liability is is on insurance is 10 million yeah now you know how much these footballers earn yeah Mm -hmm. it doesn't even begin to scratch the surface yeah if you look because they work it out over maybe a 10-year playing career or potentially you know so huge sums effectively and uh, we even got into the position it must have been about 10 12 years ago 
of one of the Premier League clubs suing the surgeon, not the player. The club. Because the player had an injury. Yeah. It was a bad injury, didn't recover. So not only did the player want to sue the doctor, but the club wanted to sue the surgeon for loss of transfer <gasps> value. Unbelievable. Now, it leaves you so vulnerable and the, the, it discourages so many people, doesn't it? Yeah. So that case was lost, but the ruling was such that it could happen again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they lost that particular case. Do you think as, as medical professionals, does that put you off ever treating particular level of player? Would, would you say, I don't want to get involved in this? Do you think people do? Think twice. Well, yes, and it has happened. Okay. One of our mutual colleagues, mm-hmm. who's a superb surgeon, and was the go-to surgeon for certain injuries in the Premier mm-hmm. League in okay. England, actually about four or five years ago, said, I've had enough. I'm not doing it anymore. And, and he wrote to all the Premier League clubs and saying, I'm not seeing any players anymore. He just got wow. fed up with the whole circus mm-hmm. that went round it. It's a bit of a blame culture as well, isn't it? You know, if someone's not getting better, it's not because of the severity of injury. It's not because of any factors relating to them. It's, it's Somebody's got to be blamed. And unfortunately, it tends to come back to the medical, the medical team, whereas obviously they're doing their, their utmost to optimise the care of that individual. But when those sums are involved and agents are involved, you can see how messy it gets. And yeah. it does discourage people. There's no doubt about that. And, and, and it comes back once again to the managers. Yeah. I mean, the managers got delicate egos. As we said, their, their tenure on their jobs is yeah. very short. Mm-hmm. And if their star striker is not playing because he's not fit, the physio gets dragged into the office. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And two things happen. Either the player's too too slow in rehabilitating, yeah. so the physio gets told off, or the managers told the physio to bring the player back mm-hmm. too early and he breaks down with injury again. <laughs> yeah. And so the physio gets... gets told off again. Told off again. Yeah. Yeah. So in many ways... They're really on a hiding to nothing. Yeah. yeah. And there's a very short-term memory, isn't it? They forget that they've actually made these decisions and the buck stops yeah. further down the line. Also, also the managers tend to sometimes use medical information. They go into uh, their press conferences yeah. Friday and they say, back to confidentiality, oh, so-and-so's had an MRI scan. But sometimes it's misinformation. They actually yeah. use medical information to try and gain an advantage over the opposition is yeah. the opposition's centre half going mm. to play or not yeah it's a very tricky situation but, yeah, but it seems like a bit of a minefield though and you you seem to cover so much of it again just that experience throughout your career would you say that sports medicine is in a, a much better place now because of all that extra knowledge are we going to continue to expand i mean what what's the future for sports medicine looking well like? we've been very slow in this country and sports medicine as a career as opposed to sports surgery has only existed for 15 or 16 years yeah. in okay. this country and what's the difference with, again, just again, for everyone's listening, sports medicine, sports surgery, sports surgery is very much based on injuries well, happening and yes, Gordon fixing. And I, Gordon, <laughs> Gordon and I pick up the scalpel. Yeah. Yep, yep. The knife. So stuff back yeah, together. The, the, <laughs> the, the sports physicians have fantastic training. So they're dealing with everything. They're dealing with skin complaints, ear yeah. problems, yeah. heart irregularities. So, so they're... Primary care and primary as well care as in an elite specific setting. for sport. Okay. But one of the things I have repeatedly questioned myself is are Gordon and I part of the problem? Because it seems to me that in nineteen eighty mm-hmm. no money was spent on looking after sports people. Now the care they're lavished is millions of pounds. Yeah. Injuries in nineteen eighty would have finished careers. Yeah. 
we can now put back and they're back yeah, in six can, months' time. Yeah, just return for, them to play. Just for, just for the next big injury and the next big hit. Strength and conditioning coaches didn't exist 15, 20 years ago. And now every major sport has a phalanx of, of sport and conditioning coaches who have the knowledge and the science to create these superhuman beings that are so big and so fast. And no one ever thinks... Well, actually, my part of the problem because I'm creating these yeah. these sporting monsters. Yeah. That's well, a really fascinating way to look at it, but, though, because I think you presume if you can fix people and get them back on the pitch, yeah. great, double thumbs up, we're doing the right thing. But yeah. actually, when you do take a step back and you go, you're kind of putting people back out to potentially yeah. rack up more yeah. injury, yeah. but later in life it might and, have a bigger no, it's impact. It's an intriguing perspective, and uh, just Bill, I, I know your book's fantastic, and you've been through all this in some detail. So I'm encouraging listeners to read your book. Yeah, it sounds amazing. But, and, and also just a wee hook for them. You also tell some fascinating stories about how the media and club doctors can sometimes get an idea into their head, whether it's relating to placentas for accelerated recovery and others, and you follow various athletes through <laughs> that recovery. So I would recommend you read the book just to be entertained by some of Bill's stories in this capacity. But also to round things off, because I know you well, Bill, you're an academic really in one level, but another level, you you still love your sport. Sports we've been fan. up, we've yeah. been up all two together. I know you've played cricket. You loved your rugby. You continue to remain active, even though you're edging into retirement. So it's clearly all worked for you. This variety of interests it keeps you it keeps you young at heart. I think it's fair to say. Yep, I feel enormously lucky. Uh, as you said, both of us are, are sports mad. Yeah. Enjoyed our sport. I was never quite good enough to be at that top level. And Likewise. And to be, <laughs> and to be invited into an Ashes winning dressing room, to be in a dressing room when your club wins the European Rugby Cup, to be at Super Saturday in 2012 yeah. when your athletes that you've looked after are winning gold medals on that Olympics, ama- amazing yeah. day. Fantastic, you know, isn't it? And it just, it, the little smile inside yeah. that, that you've been privileged enough to look under the bonnet to, yeah, of, to be the, part of, of, of these amazing athletes. That's a good yeah. description, actually. That's because that's what we do. Yeah, we, we look, look under, under the, the bonnet and we do our yeah. best to keep it keep it running. Tinker, make sure the, <laughs> the oil's sopped up. And, yeah. and if anyone's listening who's maybe not quite an elite athlete, just to, to finish up, what advice would you give for trying to avoid injury? Because, again, you've both dealt with a lot of injury over the years. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything you can do to make dollar sure question. that yeah. you, well, you try and avoid those horrible moments? We don't want to come and see you guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm not trying to sell the book. <laughs> but it's available. It's available in all recommended bookshops. But, 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 but I have got. So there's a chapter about the young, just saying about the academies and kids going into single specialty sport. I, I feel passionately that all youngsters and parents should make their kids give them the chance to try lots of different sports. Yeah. The the chapter that follows that is then called the Young at Heart. Nice. Which is for the. For the men in, you know, the mammals, the middle-aged men in Lycra. And and, and once again, I think as we get older, you know, I'm 67. I think it's really important that you mix it up. Uh And one of the things we learned from the pandemic when the gyms were closed, and I'm sure Gordon's clinics was a bit like mine. People were coming in with stress fractures. Their Achilles was swollen like sausages because suddenly they went from zero exercise Mm to marathon training programs when they shouldn't. Right. So I think whatever sport you take up, encourage you, of course, to do it, but just take it up and gradually increase it. Get some advice. And the more different types of sport you can do, the better it'll be for your body. 
Yeah. I think that's a top tip. I think that's, it, is. Uh, it really is. We should all take that on board. Variety and moderation. Yeah, don't overload it at the start. Yeah, exactly. Don't get too excited. Like everything in life. (laughs) Like everything in life. Good life advice to finish up. But we could talk to you all day and an incredible career. But we don't need to. We can read the book. We can read the book. (laughs) Thank you. Bill, thank you for joining us. I love it. Thank you again. It's a pleasure.